0: we all would like to think of ourselves as cool under pressure, wouldn't we? We have expectations of how we will act when under stress or when confronted with difficulty. But I found for myself, especially in this last season, uh, six to seven months, and for many others, that we are often surprised by our response, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, of how we respond in difficulty. Just under 23 years ago which seems like a really long time ago. I was in my freshman basketball season with the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame, and we had played in a few early season games, but with very small crowds, and so it truly hadn't hit me yet that I was playing college basketball. The second game of our season was on the road against Marquette University in Milwaukee, though. How many of you ever heard of Marquette? Anybody? A couple of you? It was gonna happen at the time in the Bradley Center, which uh, at the time was the home of the NBA team, the Milwaukee Bucks. I don't know if they still play there or not but it was going to be packed out and uh, it seemed that way to my 18-year-old mind. Uh, This was the first truly big game I had ever played in and most of it I think I was disassociated and don't remember it because it was so uh, new to me. But like any young boy who had aspirations and dreams of playing Division I basketball, I'd practiced for this moment hundreds of times, thousands of times in my driveway. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Three, two, one, swish, You know, buzzer goes off, Hans wins the game, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. I'd practice free throws thinking the line, the game's on the line, I gotta finish this one, right? Hundreds of times. But for the first time, I was on the line with thousands of people screaming in my ear. And the people behind the transparent backboard were waving those silly balloon-looking things that you see at NBA games that are trying to distract you, and for a moment. I completely forgot where I was. I had the ball in my hands and I went to take the shot and it clanged off the rim. I was so disappointed in myself. My very first free throw in college basketball that actually mattered and it clanged off the rim. Now we were losing pretty badly so it wouldn't have really mattered but as I stood there frustrated, I realized that I hadn't been focusing. And in the time between the two shots, I was realizing that I was paying attention to all of the distractions, all of the, the stress around me and I wasn't focused on what I was doing. And so I clicked back in, and and the routine that I practiced probably thousands of times came back to me, and by the second free throw, my preparation was there, and I was able to make one of two, but the first shot is what I remember. If we don't prepare our minds and hearts for situations under stress and purposefully enter into them with preparation, we have no idea what our reaction will be when the time comes. We need to prepare so that we are ready for those moments. I wonder if that same motivation wasn't part of the motivation behind the writing of the gospel according to Mark. Remember that Mark was writing to a fledgling church. These were all basically new believers, uh, young believers in the faith, and he was writing to them uh, in the midst of the Roman Empire where they were starting to be martyred and killed. Uh, People were having to deal with suffering that this, this new church had never really had to deal with. Christians were being viewed across the empire in a less favorable light, and Rome was starting to target them. And he was even, uh, they were even trying to, to martyr these Christians in great numbers so that more Christians would uh, stop converting. We talked about this a lot in Mark 13, the foretelling there of what was going to happen to that first group of disciples in the first century church. It was largely given to them to strengthen them and give them confidence to bolster them in the midst of this idea that they could be killed for their faith. And this is something that we, uh, we don't necessarily know in the Western world all that much, right? Recall some of it with me here. If you'll, you'll look at the screen, uh, this is Mark 13, 9 through 13. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, a quick show of hands how many of you have ever heard this text used for a gospel presentation? Anyone? Nobody. Didn't think so. How many times have you heard in a gospel presentation, accept Jesus because you might die, life's going to get really hard, people will hate you, maybe even your own family? Any takers? Nobody's ever heard that. Because that's not how we're trained in the Western world to present the gospel. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. It's good. It's comfortable. Nobody's going to ever, you know, it's, it's all good, right? Jesus loves you. Is that really the truth of what Jesus was trying to get across? Yes, Jesus loves you, but a sentimentality will not hold you strong when suffering comes. What will hold you strong is the true understanding of that love that is allegiance to Christ in all circumstances. Mark's trying to prepare believers for the trials that they will face because unlike the Western world of today, people that chose to follow Christ in that day as disciples were well aware of the fact that following Jesus could end in their death. And that's the fact for a lot of Christians in the world today. Just most of us in the Western world don't understand that. Now, next week, we're going to be looking at Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin in a type of trial, and he's going to be practicing what he preaches. He's going to be a witness to the Father, proclaiming the truth, not worried about what's going to happen. And that's going to be compared and contrasted with the denial of Peter and uh, his false witness. And so the portion of the story that's before us today, it's actually meant to interact with these other two. But for the sake of time, we're going to just look at it. But it's, again, that literary tool of sandwiching, right? We've got the two pieces of bread and the meat in the middle. The meat in the middle is the true witness of Jesus that we'll look at next week. The two pieces of bread on either side are the false witness of the disciples. And we'll look at Peter's denial next week. Mark is again using this in order to try and get us to focus on Jesus, but I think in the two pieces of bread, so to speak, he's got very important uh, information to give us as well. And this will be helpful for us today as we look at the betrayal and arrest of Jesus and see a very important truth that I think is very pertinent to where we are in life right now, and that's this. A disciple's proclamation is destroyed by a life of atheism. A disciple's proclamation is destroyed by a life of atheism. I'll explain what that means. We can proclaim Jesus all we want with our lips, but if our actions operate in direct contradiction to our faith in God and his word, then any proclamation that comes out of our mouth is made worthless. It's destroyed. How many times have you seen people start to inch towards the Lord but then they fall away, and the reason they do is because they say, well, this Christian did that or this Christian did that. How many people have justified their lack of faith in Jesus because of Christian pastors who fleece the flock? How many times have you seen that, where we're not being actual examples of Jesus? We're saying we are, but then with our life, we don't lead it. Today, we will see three parties who illustrate this idea. First, the Pharisees, the the religious leaders, and the band that they send to arrest Jesus, and then Judas, and then the rest of the disciples. And as we near the end of this gospel, we're getting close to the end, the readers or hearers of this gospel are going to be pressed more and more, and we're going to be pressed more and more to answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Mark has made his case, and then he's basically lifting it up to the listeners to say, who do you say he is? And so we find ourselves looking at the characters in this story, comparing ourselves and seeing into which character we might fall, and this brings or should bring conviction. And so we're going to find ourselves asking this, this morning, is my proclamation of Jesus as my Savior and King contradicted by the way that I live life? In other words, do I outwardly look more like an atheist to the world than a disciple? So let's read the story, and then we'll look at the first group. Take a look there at Mark 14, 43. It says, And immediately, remember that Mark tries to kind of get us up and and energetic here. He uses immediately a lot. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man." Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. You have this amazing chaotic scene that happens. Jesus is there in the peacefulness of the garden. He's there with a few of his disciples. It sounds like some of the people in the cave, as we talked about last time, sleeping, came over to Jesus as the, the band of, of uh, people coming to arrest him came. And there's, uh, there's discussion about how big that group was. It wasn't just a small, ragtag group of of guards. It was high priest guards as well as possibly Roman soldiers. And some of the words used in the Gospels say that it could have been a huge number of of soldiers that came to take Jesus. And it gets into it so uh, heatedly that one of the people, we don't know fully who, one of the Gospels says it probably was Peter, pulls out a sword and cuts off an ear of one of the high priest servants. And so there was this little bit of a melee, and then Jesus calms it down. And so we see this situation where they come to him treating him as if he's a rebel when he's saying, guys, I I preached every day and you didn't arrest me then. Why are you arresting me now? Well, the reason is, is because eventually after hearing Jesus's teachings, uh, they had to take it side. They couldn't call him just a good rabbi anymore. They had to decide who he was. And here's the truth of where they stood. You can write this down This is the first point. The religious leaders believed in God, but when confronted by him, treated him as an enemy. The religious leaders believed in God, but when confronted by him, treated him as an enemy. Remember that the religious leaders of the day were men who were dedicated to the spiritual life of Israel, especially amongst the scribes and Pharisees. You have men that desire the full glory of Israel and believe that the reason that they're under occupation of, of the Romans is because the people refused to live lives holy and connected to the ceremonial law. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they created traditions to try and push the people, the hard hearts of the people, towards Yahweh and his rule. But at this point, though, it wasn't working, and they, they just didn't realize what they had in front of them. They misunderstood the point of the Scriptures, that... We're pointing all to the necessity and promise of a Messiah, one who would properly characterize God to them, one who would lead them in the righteousness and justice of God, one who would be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. The leaders miss this, and so with their mouth, they're proclaiming to follow God, but they're completely on a different page with God. And this was the case through every generation of Israel. They said, we want to follow Yahweh and be his people. But then with each successive generation, God would send prophets or in the case of Jesus, the ultimate prophet, and they would respond with an attitude that said, well, the God that they preach is not the God of our making or the God we want, so let's kill them. And their words said one thing, but their action another. Look with me here, for example, at Jesus calling them out in Luke 11, 47 and 48. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, in other words, to honor them, whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. This is what would happen. A generation would come along and they'd look back at their moms and dads and go, well, we'll never be sinners like them. They killed the prophets. We would never do that. But then a prophet would show up and what would they do? They'd kill them. And so there was this complete hypocrisy. They didn't understand that they were just as prideful as every one of their previous generations. All of mankind does not seek after God, does not want him to rule over us. It is innate within us. And so rather than see Jesus for the truth of who he is, the word "sees" is used here three times in this short text to portray the fact that they desired to have power over him. They didn't want him to reign over them. They wanted to reign over him. And rather than rightly lay down their lives in submission to him, they have no fear of the very God they say they worship. The leaders were supposedly trying to purify the people so as to invite God into their midst, but when he shows up, they seize him, take power over him, and kill him. Their many words were saying that they wanted to give their lives to God, but the practical acting out of the faith completely failed when presented with the truth of God in human form. And this is why, when describing the religious leaders in another gospel, Jesus quoted from the prophet Isaiah in saying this These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I would hate to see what Jesus would say about the American church. We do this very same thing, don't we? When we refuse, ignore, or contradict the truth of God's word or the truth of his character. Often, if either his commands or character run contrary to what we have decided is right and true in our own imaginations and emotions, we hear the God of the Bible and we rage against him as if he is an enemy like these religious leaders. And guys, if you think you're immune to this, just pick the right subject, right? Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's, I don't know, masks. Maybe it's, I don't know, being in authority uh, or being in submission to authority, Maybe it's racial reconciliation. Well, you know, I'm I'm not going to fight against anything God says except this one subject, right? We're no different than these folks. We tell us that we're wrong. Is there something for you that the Holy Spirit is hitting you with right now, is convicting you with that you know is in God's word that you kind of refuse and you push back against? And eh, I'll believe 98% of the Bible, but that 2% I don't want to believe. Because you've made yourself the authority of what is right and true. Is there anything that the Holy Spirit might be convicting you of right now? You see, the second we begin to change or mold the truth of God and his word to what we believe, our words declaring his role as Savior and King have lost all meaning because in practical fashion, we're living out a life in which there is no God except our own opinions, emotions, and feelings. In essence, we have become practical atheists because we live as if there is no God to whom we must answer. And you might know this, and you might understand this, because for some of us, we're fine when we're in front of other people. But when we're by ourselves, we live out a life of practical atheism because no one's around to watch, except God himself. We see this not only in the religious leaders, but also in the disciples, primarily in Judas. Write this down. Judas himself walked with Jesus, but his pride led him to betray Jesus. Judas walked with Jesus, but his pride led him to betray Jesus. Judas is one of, if not the most heartbreaking stories and tragic characters in the Gospels. Here is a man who, by all accounts, was a faithful disciple up until the betrayal. There are statements about him in the Gospels that make him uh, or acknowledge him as this very evil man who obviously betrayed the king of the universe, betrayed the Messiah, but many scholars would suggest that the only reason those are there is the 20-20 hindsight or maybe even sour grapes, rightly so. Judas was trustworthy enough that the Gospels say that Jesus himself and the rest of the disciples trusted him with the money box. Now, I don't know about you, but the guy I want as my elder in charge of money, he better be a trustworthy guy, right? It's one of the reasons that we hold Ryan to a very high count, <laughs> okay? He's the guy who's kind of watching the numbers, right? And you got to trust that guy. We wouldn't put somebody in that position if we didn't trust them. And so Judas, by all accounts, is a responsible guy. He's responsible for taking care of the money donated to the disciples and for doling it out as benevolence to the needy. His name, Judas, simply means Jew, and he can be seen as a type or a representative of the Jewish people as a, as a whole who denied their Messiah, and the name Iscariot could have multiple meanings. It could be an indication of the town he grew up in. Uh, it could be derived from a name that means liar or hypocrite in the Aramaic, the word shikar. But it most likely is derived from the Greek Sakarios, which is a word which means assassin and is used to identify him as a member of the religious and political sect known as the Sikari, or the zealots. If you remember from previous studies, these were the militia men of the day fighting a guerrilla war against the Roman occupiers attempting to bring freedom to Israel by way of force. Guys, militias and survivalist groups are not something that just exists in 2020, right? This is what Judas was, was he was part of this zealous group that was trying to upend the Roman occupiers and bring freedom to Israel by way of force and violent means. Many commentators theorize that this could have played a part in the motivation of Judas to betray Jesus. I think we like to picture him in a kind of contorted, perverse way, seeing him with horns poking out and this grimace on his face, right, as an evil monster because of his horrific betrayal of our Savior, and that his only motivation was the greed of 30 pieces of silver. But this may not have been his motivation. For example, 30 pieces of silver was only about two to three months of wages, To betray the one whom you'd follow for three years and all of your buddies for that paltry amount doesn't make a ton of sense. And secondly, because he had access to the money of the disciples, if he was just that greedy, why didn't he just take that and run? It doesn't make a ton of sense that it was greed that could have been part of it, but not all of it. And so some commentators have theorized that his role as a zealot played a greater part. You might say, well, Hans, he was just taken over by the enemy and, and Satan just made him do it. But guys, that, that doesn't play out practically. We, we know this. When, when people act in ways that are part of the kingdom of darkness and on the side of the enemy, you don't see them suddenly grow horns and grab a pitchfork, right? You see them justify it in their own minds and suddenly the, the wisdom of the kingdom of darkness mixes with their own justification and there you have someone who's an enemy of Christ. And so what's going on here for Judas is most likely that he got sick and tired of this non-violent stuff. Would Jesus, hold on a second, you want to change people's hearts? No, get me a dagger. We'll figure out how to deal with the Romans, right? Perhaps he'd grown tired of the supposed inaction he saw in this failed leader. He saw a need for a political leader, one who would act in a way that made sense to his zealot sensibilities, and Jesus wasn't lining up with his politics, man. But Jesus was a nonviolent renegade. He was one who was just trying to bring the kingdom of God through a means other than violence. And in Judas's eyes, maybe it may have been that this was getting them nowhere. And so, whether trying to get Jesus out of the way through imprisonment so that a newer, stronger, zealous leader could emerge, or perhaps to force Jesus' hand to fight back through physical violence... Perhaps Judas betrayed Jesus to push forward his own view of what is needed to happen. If only I can bring the Roman soldiers to Jesus, maybe then he'll react the way I think he should react. It could have been that Judas had justified his actions within his own mind because of his political desires. And friends, this is no different than today, where many, even within this room, might be blinded by your own political desires to such a point that their view of Christianity becomes more an idol of their own making than something Jesus would commend. Even though these are merely theories of the motivation of Judas on which we can't stand 100%, we can know for sure that Judas completely missed the point of Jesus and the kingdom he was bringing to this earth. And he was one who walked with Jesus, ministered with Jesus, saw Jesus' work. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the same trap. The second we begin to change or mold the truth of God and his word to what we believe, our words declaring his role as savior and king have lost all meaning because in practical fashion, we are living out a life in which there is no God except our own opinions and feelings. In essence, we've become practical atheists because we live as if there is no God to whom we must answer. Brothers or sisters, have you justified your actions that is contrary to the Christ of the Bible because it fits your political stance? Have you justified the inappropriate, unethical actions of a political leader because it fits your political stance? And guys, if you think I'm talking about one, I'm talking about both. Have you started to turn God into something that a Republican or a Democrat would recognize as opposed to someone before whom Republicans and Democrats will bow the knee. Perhaps this is why Jesus declares in Matthew 7, 21 through 23 this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Look at that phrase, on that day. What is the word that comes after it? Go ahead and say it. Many. On that day, what? Many. Is many a lot or a little? A lot. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, I was one of your guys, Jesus. I, I did all these things. I was religious. I went to church. I, I, I did all these things in your name. And he's going to say, I, I don't know you. Many who think they follow him as Lord actually live lives in which there is no evidence that they know him at all. Lives practically lived out in atheism. Well, not only do we see these religious leaders in Judas acting out of practical atheism, but we see the same thing in the very disciples of Jesus. The disciples said that they would fight for Jesus, but they left him and fled. The disciples said they would fight for Jesus, but they left him and fled. These men said that they would lay down their lives. Just a couple of verses earlier, Peter himself said, others may fall away, but not me. Friends, if we're not humbled by that, that we could be like Peter, we could be like the disciples, then there's something wrong with us, and we need to repent. All the words and religious intentions and maybe even, quote-unquote, hearts were supposedly on God's side. But when it came to practical life, atheism was what was proclaimed. When presented with death alongside of Jesus or running away to save their own flesh, they chose the latter. And this was an outcome that none of them would have foreseen. Friends, hearts not soft to the call of Jesus and overcome with the truth of the Holy Spirit will quickly justify their own desires. Sin is deceiving, including the sin of turning your back on Christ. If you think you are impervious to the deceit of sin, it's got another thing for you. Wasn't it enough that they believed in Jesus, that they spent time in his presence? Well, to a certain extent, you could say the same thing about the demons. James 2.19 says this. It says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. You see, some 200 plus years ago, I probably have that timeline wrong, but Back a couple centuries ago, the gospel started to get transitioned from the fact that we are sinners in need of salvation and we must repent, and then after the free grace that justifies us is given, we must walk in sanctification and obedience to Jesus, striving after a zeal for Christ and nothing else. And it was changed to, God has a great plan for you. You are special to him. It became this romantic, uh, I want to say slop, (laughs) for lack of a better term. It is true that God loves you, but it's also true the hard truths that we must step into his presence and let him be king or else he is nothing. You see, to be a disciple of Jesus means that you accept his death on your behalf and also that you are then willing to partner with him in his mission. Guys, we are saved by grace alone. His justification comes from nothing we do. In fact, we are enemies when we are justified. But the second we are justified, the moment we are justified, he pours out his spirit into our hearts. And then he says, dear child, follow me, obey me, because it's good for you, it's right for you. And so it's not only that we accept his death on our behalf, but also that we are willing to partner with him in his mission. And this means, dear church, that we engage in suffering as he engaged to the level it's presented to us. And possibly that means even taking on death at the hands of the kingdom of darkness As he did. Remember that the curse Jesus suffered for us was not just physical death, not just the torture of the cross, but more importantly, as we talked about last week, separation from the Father whom he'd been with for eternity and taking on the sin of all mankind. So when I hear Christians say things along the lines of, I'm sure glad Jesus took all the hard stuff so I don't have to, in one sense they're correct because Jesus took on separation from the Father due to sin that you don't have to with an eternal weight that you don't have to. And so that is true. But I also cringe because a person who says this is all that the gospel is has completely misunderstood discipleship of Christ. This kind of statement can only be made in Western Christianity. The Christianity that we see in the Western world today would be unrecognizable to Christians in the first century. To follow Jesus was not to gain your best life now. It was to lose it altogether. It was not to be comfortable and prosperous. It was costly. Pastors then would declare the need to witness to the glory of Jesus even if it meant your death. That is not what's professed now. Remember back in the 90s, I was part of a student Christian group and somebody came and was talking, a missionary, about in Russia prior to the fall of the USSR that churches, because they were persecuted, they'd send a group of people to another church to communicate with them and worship with them. And one of the ways they'd check to see who the true Christians were is they'd all bring their guns with them and masks and they'd walk in and they'd say, we're here to kill all the Christians. And half this church or more would scatter and leave. And then they'd put their guns down and they'd say, Great, now we know who's a real Christian. Let's worship. I wonder, dear friends, what would happen if that happened in this church. I pray that it never does. How many of us would scatter? How many of us would stand firm, willing to lose our life on behalf of Christ? Oh, Hans, you're being so dramatic. Oh, come on. That would never happen. It happens in churches all across the world every Sunday. In Burkina Faso, it happens all the time. And not only that, it's what Scripture tells us God requires of us. This is Matthew 24, 9. Jesus said, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Well, Hans, maybe that's the, just the first century Christians. Well, this is Paul in Philippians 3:10, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And this isn't a backache, guys. This is that the world will hate you and that the entire kingdom of darkness will be against you. Do you realize that when you raised your hand in allegiance to Jesus, you had the entire uh, army of darkness behind you waiting to kill you? That's what happens when you accept Jesus Christ. Paul elsewhere says, I will fill up the sufferings of Christ. To follow Christ is to look death and martyrdom in the face and say, I am willing to die for the name of Christ if needed to witness to his glory. And guys, I'm not up here you know, saying that, oh man, that's easy, I can do that. I'm in the same boat you are. What would that look like? God, give me the grace and the strength and the power that if I get confronted with that today, that my fleshly self would not weasel out of it and justify it in some sense, but would stand firm in your truth. We need to be praying that all the time. Every time I've gone to a third world country, which isn't a ton, guys, but it's a handful of times, and every time I've had to wrestle with this idea, what if I don't come back? Would I be willing to die for his name? Two trips ago, I went and we were driving through the, the bush country there, and we came out and we got into the city and, and uh, got some gas, and I got out to stretch out of the, the truck and... Marcel said, Get back in the truck. I was like, What's wrong, Marcel? And he pointed, and over in the distance were two women staring directly at me in full covering, black coverings with a little slit in their eyes. And he said, Al Qaeda, get in the truck. And later he told me, He said, Those are lookouts for Al Qaeda, and they're looking for Westerners to kidnap them and possibly kill them and put them on TV. You're a big target. (laughs) All of a sudden it became real. All of a sudden it became real. The last time I went, I came home, and many of you remember this, a month later, the cafe where we ate dinner every night was blown up. And Christians were pulled out of the crowd and shot point blank because they were Christians by Muslim terrorists. When I read that, I went, gulp? I'm a month away for that have been been me. A Western missionary, a man from the United States, was killed because he was a Christian. This happens all the time. Would I be willing to die for his name? The question every potential disciple needs to answer is, are you willing to die in witness to the glory of Jesus the Christ? Because guys, if you can answer that question, everything else is easy. If you answer that question, then the question of surrendering anything is already answered. Will you surrender your time, talents, and financial treasure to God and to his mission? Well, if I'm going to die, yeah, of course, I'm going to do that. Will you lay down your life and opinions in order to bring unity and reconciliation? Well, yeah, if I'm going to die, I'm going to do that. Will you lay down your political opinions to gather with, to love, and to serve the people of God? Of course I will. When hard conversations are brought to your attention, will you respond by killing your defensiveness and moving forward in humility? Well, yeah, I'm going to die. I'm going to do that. When you're hurt, will you sacrifice your own hurt to pursue others in the name of Christ? Of course, yes. Will you lay down your pride so that humility by the Holy Spirit can reign? Well, if I'm going to die, then my pride can die. Are you willing to die physically, spiritually, practically, metaphorically in witness to the glory of Jesus the Christ? Or do you proclaim with your mouth something you are unwilling to live out in practical life? Friends, what might God be calling to you in this very moment in radical obedience or radical surrender that you have been holding off? Which thing is it? Maybe it's for you. It's, I just don't want to submit to the body. Man, I just don't want to become a member of this church and submit myself to other Christians. I just don't want to give of any of my financial resources to this, this church. I don't want to go on that mission trip I know that God's been calling me to, but I'm, I'm scared. I don't want to surrender to my spouse who's been calling me to righteousness and I'm sick and tired of it. Right? What is it that the Lord is calling you to in radical obedience or radical surrender that may not be your physical life but is laying down something? This story in Mark ends with an odd vignette describing the fleeing of this young man and he takes off and it leaves so that he's basically running in his loincloth. And church history has looked at this and said, who could this possibly be? It could be John Mark, the traditional author of this gospel, him professing and confessing. But if it were a confession, he probably would have included his name. It could be Peter who, you know, some people say it was him, but the reality is, is Peter's been embarrassed by name in other situations. Why wouldn't he include his name here? But the same question comes to us in 2020, who is this? And and the reality is, is that this is probably a literary tool that's used. It probably was someone there, but Mark uses it as an example to present a question to you and me, a nameless, faceless person that we can almost identify with and go, what would I do in that situation? He's basically asking us, if that were you, what would you do? Would you flee or would you go to your death? And the same question needs to be repeated to us over and over. What are we going to do? Not even just with death. Let's take a few steps back. With the sign of stress or pain or discomfort or confusion or distraction. Will you flee from following this one whom you have professed to be your Savior, Lord and King? Or maybe you might be cool under pressure of an external trial. But what happens when you are presented with the character or commands of God and it doesn't align with what your innate feelings or desires believe? Will you flee from following the one whom you've professed to be your Savior, Lord, and King, just so you can hold your own opinion? When I'm presented with the portions of Scripture or theology or views about God that I don't like or don't make sense to me, what do I do with that? Do I study and and ask for counsel from godly people to align my will with his and surrender what I believe to be true? Or do I stand firmly in rebellion saying I'm the one who gets to decide what is truth? At the end of the day, this is the application question for all of us from this text. When presented with trials, external or internal, what will you do? The trial may be the threat of external harm, pandemic, fires, whatever, or maybe even embarrassment at the trial that you're dealing with. Or it may be something internal, the dwindling away of your faith replaced by a worldly ideology or desire you're helpless to fight. When your faith is challenged, or worse, when your very life is challenged, what will you do, brother or sister? The last seven months have taught me that when suffering or trial, imagined or real, comes to our doorsteps, we need to be strengthened in the absolute truth of God's word and immersed in relationship with him and his people and laser-focused on obedience to his call and command. Because if not, then that stress that we feel, those internal needs to cope, the self-protective forces inside us, they will cause us to justify and flee just as we see in this story. And we will end up standing before the Lord, naked in our own sin, just as this young man was. Every one of these characters that we've looked at today believed God, believed they were pursuing God and doing what God wanted, but in the end, they literally deserted God in the flesh. And for you to stand firm in those moments that are surely to come in the future maybe even in situations that are more intense than we can currently understand or imagine or even think might happen, friend, you need to decide today that you are Christ's. Decide today that you are Christ's. Decide today that you will have faith in him, be loyal to him, trust him, and obey his commands even when it doesn't feel right or make sense in your earthly human logic. And this starts with a profession of him as Savior and King. If you've never professed him as not only your Savior to save you from the wrath to come for your sins, but also as King who leads over your life, then you need to do that today. And you can do that right where you sit, right at home, right here in this room. You can cry out and say, Lord, I need you not only to save me from my sins, but then to also be my King and lead me and change me and align my will with yours. You need to do that right where you're at. And then, from that point on, number one, we'd love to talk with you. Myself, Ryan, Tyler, we'd love to engage you. uh, and We can talk with any of you. Any of our deacons would love to talk to you about what it is to be discipled in Jesus. But from there, then, we need to practice every single day to engage that idea, not just in words that he's our Lord and Savior, but in action, so that when the day comes, where you are under pressure from either those internal or external forces, you will will stand firm in your proclamation that Jesus is indeed your Lord and Savior. You see, friends, it's very simple. Jesus was clear to us that if he is your king, if you love him, you will obey his commands. John 14, 15 says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It can't get much more straightforward than that. There are three, if not four more places in John 14 specifically that talk about this very same thing. Here's another one from 1 John 2, 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Everybody repeat that with me. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Keep going with me. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Let that sink in for a second. I'm really glad I didn't say that because if I said that, I would be hard-pressed to actually say it out loud, but that's God's word. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Friends, there are some of you in here, it doesn't matter if you're you know, 15 or 40 or 60, some of you in here have been relying on the people around you or maybe your parents or maybe your familial faith, and you've never determined that you are going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You can't rely on anybody else's faith. It has to be your own. Stop living a life of practical atheism and engage Jesus as your Lord and King. In our obedience, our allegiance is shown. And the second we begin to change or mold the truth of God and his word to what we believe, as I've already said two other times in this sermon, our words declaring his role as Savior and King have lost all meaning because in practical fashion, we are living out a life in which there is no God except our own opinions and feelings. In essence, we become practical atheists because we live as if there is no God to whom we must answer. My desire as your, pra- your pastor is that we as a church teach and equip you now in times where you're able to build up your strength so that when the hard times come, you are prepared. And dear friends, those times may come in your life when you least expect them. It might be cancer, it might be a sickness, it might be COVID that leads to death, it might be something else. It may be martyrdom in our lifetime. We don't know. And it's within this mind that I was convicted this week when I read an editorial by John Piper. John Piper is a wonderful teacher, a pastor who's retired now, who is just an awesome man of God, and his writings are amazing, even if you don't agree with everything he says. But the overall context was in regard to the upcoming election, and and I'd highly recommend it to you all to read, especially if you haven't voted yet, because he was trying to breathe biblical truth into our understanding of our Christian stance towards voting. And it's entitled this. You can write this down and go read it. You can find it on Desiring God. Uh, Policies, Persons, and Paths to Ruin, pondering the implications of the 2020 election. But he finishes with a word to pastors in this where he calls us to cultivate Christians that are actually Christians, not just Christians in name only, who live out lives in what we are calling this morning practical atheism. This is what he says. May I suggest to pastors that in the quietness of your study, you do this. Imagine that America collapses. First, anarchy, then tyranny, from the right or the left. Imagine that religious freedom is gone. And what remains for Christians is fines, prison, exile, and martyrdom. Then, pastor, ask yourself this. Has my preaching been developing real, radical Christians? Christians who can sing on the scaffold? In other words, as they're being hung? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Christians who will act like the believers in Hebrews 10.34, who joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, in other words, their personal freedoms, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's from Hebrews 10.34. Christians who will face hate and reviling and exclusion for Christ's sake, and yet rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, their reward is great in heaven. That's Luke 6. Have you been cultivating real Christians, Pastor, who see the beauty and the worth of the Son of God? Have you faithfully unfolded and heralded the unsearchable riches of Christ? Are you raising up generations of those who will say with Paul, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? Pastor, have you shown them that they are sojourners and exiles and that their citizenship is in heaven from which they await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they feel in their bones that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Or, pastor, have you neglected these greatest of all realities and repeatedly diverted their attention onto the strategies of politics? Have you inadvertently created the mindset that the greatest issue in life is saving America and its earthly benefits? Or have you shown your people that the greatest issue is exalting Christ with or without America? Have you shown them that the people who do the most good for the greatest number for the longest time, including America, are people who have the aroma of another world with another king? It's a great question for me. It's a great question for our elders. And it's a great question for you. Are we as your elders helping you in this? Are you willingly and helpfully partnering with us in this pursuit? Man, I want us with all of my heart to be a church that is prepared to honor our king and obey his commands no matter what comes, internal or external. I want us to be a people that can not only speak the gospel truth and proclaim Christ died with our mouths that he was risen, ascended, and enthroned, but also with our lives in radical obedience. Today, through the religious leaders that we've seen in this story, through Judas and through the disciples, we learned that a disciple's proclamation is contradicted and destroyed by a life of atheism. So the question for you, dear friends, is what areas of my life or what tightly held opinions and beliefs contradict my proclamation that Jesus is Lord and King and his word is true? What action do I need to take to bring them into alignment with that proclamation? I would encourage you to engage your spouses and your roommates and your friends and your discipleship group and your community group with these questions. What action do I need to take to make my mouth line up with my actions, to make my actions line up with my mouth? Lord God, help us to be a people that through thick or thin give evidence of our proclamation with our lives of obedience and honor of our King. And dear friends, may the Holy Spirit impact us with what areas of our lives need to be surrendered to Christ so that we are, in fact, living out our proclamation to the gospel. Amen? Amen? Amen.